Well, we are going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians is um, a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had planted roughly 10 years earlier, and uh, he wrote that letter while in prison in Rome. Uh, We began by looking at uh, the first couple of verses, uh, which really was the the opening or the greeting of the letter where where Paul really there uh, described and stressed the Christian's identity. And then we moved on from there to look at uh, the next section, which was a prayer that Paul uh, explained or or detailed for this church, a prayer that even though he in prison uh, was languishing there uh, under constant guard, was nonetheless praying for their well-being and asking God to do a work among them. And this morning, we continue uh, by looking at finally Paul beginning to share a little bit about what is going on with him in prison. He hasn't really said a whole lot about his experience or or what's been happening there, and so we begin to see now how the Lord is working, uh, even though he is in prison. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. As always, if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to follow along. We'll be looking at specific words and phrases uh, as we go through. If you don't have a Bible, if you forgot to bring one or you don't own one, uh, you can find a Bible uh, in the seat in front of you underneath the seat somewhere. There should be a Bible, and there you'll find the passage on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Says. Paul then delves into this part of the letter. He is following kind of, in a way, standard letter writing of that day. We've already seen that he follows the standard procedure in the sense that he puts his name at the start. We talked about that in the first uh, sermon, how we, in our day and age, will put our name at the end of a letter or an email or something. And we see here that this is typically how letters went where after a brief introduction, then they would go into, let me tell you how I'm doing. And so he's following along with that kind of standard. But I think what we see here when he begins talking in verse 12 is that I I think underneath what he's saying is that he wants this church, this church church that he planted roughly 10 years ago that's been supporting him, he wants them to know that they need not despair over his imprisonment. 
They need not despair over his imprisonment. I mean, look at how he's speaking. And you can imagine how they might be given to despair because they have begun, you know, right from the get-go, they were very uh, enthusiastic supporters of Paul. They began supporting him in his missionary work uh, with funds, with prayers. They've even now supported him in prison. And Paul is not only beginning his letter by praying for them, but now he's beginning it by reassuring them. Because if I'm in this Philippian church, I might be thinking, once I hear that Paul is languishing in a prison in Rome, well, what might become of his ministry? Where, where is this going? Has my support been in vain? Has all of our time and effort and money been for naught? Maybe even, is Jesus Lord? I mean, you can just think about the fact that Paul has convinced this group of people who are surrounded by a Roman society that is not kind to Christians that they need to entrust their entire future into this one called Jesus of Nazareth. And they've essentially turned over their secure lives in this world to entrust them to Jesus, and now who is this Jesus if he can't even keep one of his chosen apostles out of prison? If he can't keep his chosen apostle out of prison, what's he, how's he going to protect me? I mean, I, I can only imagine what they might be thinking. And what could Paul have been thinking? I mean, here's a man who's given up his life to be a missionary for Christ. Here's a man who was basically on his way to stardom in, in Israel. Here was a man who was taught under the top teacher and was his star student and probably would have had a rather cushy life as a Pharisee. And now, here he is, having been called by Jesus to travel the world and proclaim the gospel, stuck in prison. And not for the first time, mind you. What could Paul be thinking? What, what am I doing here? Uh, was this all a mistake? Is Jesus God? Who knows? We're not given every thought that he has. But you know, sometimes unsuspecting trials bring troublesome questions. I mean, if you don't believe that they do, all you need to do is go read the Psalms. You read through the Psalms and you see time and again that very godly men, men that are inspired by God to write that Psalm, are posing agonizing questions to God over the situation that they find themselves. If you don't think that circumstances, troubling circumstances, can bring troubling questions, all we need to do is look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, who saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven and rest, who heard the voice from heaven who was given direction by God to baptize this one, and yet when he was in prison himself, sent to Jesus and asked the question, are you really the one? 
Did any of Paul's suffering and trials take him by surprise? Maybe. We know when Paul expresses his heart at different places, he says that he despaired of life itself. That at different times he was filled with anxiety for the churches. I don't know everything that went through Paul's mind. But the question we ask ourselves is, did any of Paul's suffering and trials take Jesus by surprise? That's the more important question. And the answer to that question is, by no means. When Jesus called Paul, this one who was Saul, who had previously been persecuting the church, before Paul was even received his sight, to even go out and begin to preach the gospel, Jesus said of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. None of this is taking Jesus. If anyone on earth was wringing their hands over Paul being in prison, Jesus wasn't one of them. Jesus in heaven is not. How then does Paul reassure them? Well, He reassures them by telling them that his suffering is not without purpose. Notice what he says. He says, listen, what has happened to me, i.e. prison, which you know I'm in because you've sent help for me, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, all human logic will tell you that a missionary going to prison unable to go around the world and preach the gospel is the worst thing that could happen. If if a missionary is languishing in a prison cell, how in the world is he going to get the gospel out? That's what logic will tell you. But Paul says that in God's logic, it was actually the best thing that could have happened. Why? Because his imprisonment, he says, has actually, rather than stopping the gospel, it has advanced it. How? How has it advanced the gospel? Well, notice, look, first of all, he says that my imprisonment has spread the good news to people I otherwise would never have spoken to. Notice who has heard the gospel. This is unbelievable. Paul says that the whole imperial guard has now heard the gospel. If you know Greek, then you know that the Greek word that Paul uses here that's translated imperial guard is praetorian. Praetorian. If you study Roman history at all, you know that the praetorian guard were the elite Roman soldiers, handpicked by Caesar to be his personal bodyguard. They were like the Navy SEALs of the Roman Empire. There were 9,000 of them. And in serving Caesar, these bodyguards, I mean, occasionally, the Praetorian Guard actually turned on Caesar. If, if, if Caesar got bad enough, it's what happened to Caligula. Some of you have heard of him. The Praetorian Guard actually turned and assassinated the one they were supposed to guard and went and found Claudius hiding behind a curtain and pulled him over and said, you're going to be the next Caesar. But this Praetorian guard, they were not only supposed to guard 
Caesar, but they were also given the job of guarding those who were awaiting trial before Caesar. And these guards were chained to these prisoners physically. Paul never was alone. Paul had one of these praetorian guards chained to him. They would rotate in four-hour shifts, and he had them with him all day and all night, every day. And so these praetorian guards got to see Paul's reaction from being in prison. They saw everything. They saw his prayers. They saw the way he interacted with people who came to visit him. And they saw how he interacted with them. And you can only imagine that it would have been far different probably than any other prisoner that they've ever guarded. You can imagine when they leave their shift with Paul telling the guy that's coming on board, this guy is crazy. This guy's act, I haven't not seen him smile the entire time. Now, I don't know if that's actually going on. I'm sure Paul, again, wrestled with things. But these guys talked. And when one would talk to the other, he would say, I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he claims that he's actually in prison for a purpose and that his God is in control over this. Now, his God has not kept him out of prison, but he's still joyful about it. You go talk to him. Meanwhile, they're all talking to him, and Paul is sharing the gospel with every guard that guards him. And so Paul says, the whole imperial guard now has heard the gospel. But not only was the whole imperial guard, the whole praetorian guard, witness to the gospel, but because they heard it, all who interacted with them heard the gospel. When the praetorian guard went back, to Caesar, and they went back to Caesar's household, they began sharing what this nut in prison is saying. Because they interacted intimately with Caesar, Paul said at the end of Philippians, this letter in chapter 4, which we will get to one day, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How amazing is that? Do you know who was Caesar at this time? Nero. Now, you don't have to be a Roman scholar to have heard about this guy. Nero is, in all of human history, one of the worst people who has ever lived. I mean, just read sometime a biography of Nero and you see how despicable this man is. Can you imagine the things that he taught his household? And yet, because Paul was in prison, the light of the gospel entered the household of Nero Caesar. How else could it have ever happened? Do you think Nero would have ever entertained the thought of some obscure Pharisee in Israel? Forget about it. But because Paul was in prison in Rome, brothers and sisters, one day when we're in glory, we will meet saints from Nero Caesar's household. How amazing is that? Paul says, look, 
I serve a God who is more powerful than any king or ruler in this world. And he understands that his God led him to prison just for this reason. Notice what he says here in verse 13. Now, our ESV translates it. He says, my imprisonment is for Christ. And I think that what the translators are getting at here, and it's, it's obviously true, is that Paul has been imprisoned for preaching Christ. That's exactly why he's there, right? I mean, Rome doesn't, again, they don't take very kindly to someone who's going to say, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. Uh, so he's in prison for preaching Christ. Uh, however, <coughs> if you look at the Greek, the, the, the Greek says something that I think, if, if, you, if you really look at it, I think says more than that. Because the Greek says, my chains are in Christ. He doesn't say my imprisonment is for Christ, but my chains are in Christ. And remember that phrase. For Paul, the phrase in Christ is of utmost importance. If you are in Christ, then you are united to him by faith and he is your Lord and you go where he tells you to go. So what Paul, I think, is ultimately saying is these chains that I'm in are Christ's will for me. My chains are in Christ. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, when Christ linked Paul with himself, he linked him also to the divine plan that Paul should go to prison. See, Christian, don't ever think that your situation, whatever situation you're in, however difficult it is, don't ever think that it's too difficult for God to use to advance the gospel. Paul probably could have never planned for this to happen. See, when, when people, when the average Roman citizen sees Paul in chains, they're going to naturally conclude that Paul is in chains for two reasons. One, because he's a criminal, he did something wrong, and two, because Rome, powerful, almighty Rome, puts down criminals. That's what the world is going to see. But Paul is saying, no, my chains are in Christ, which means that what is happening to me completely transcends all earthly means and power. What is happening to me goes beyond the power of Rome and is tied to the almighty power of God, and he is the one who has put me in these chains for his greater purpose. That's what Paul is saying. But notice, it wasn't just Paul's ability to share the gospel with the praetorian guard that has him excited. He says here that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel because, secondly, others have become more confident by my imprisonment to share the gospel as well. His imprisonment has led to the church being emboldened to share the gospel. Now, the first time I read that, I couldn't make sense of it. I thought, how, how, is, how does that logically connect? Because I can tell you that if someone was put in prison by the highest authority in the world, 
unable to get out by his own power for something that I was kind of thinking about doing, I don't think that that imprisonment would empower me to go do it. I think it would rather deter me from doing it. But Paul is saying, my imprisonment has emboldened people. Now, now I don't understand that. I didn't make any sense of it until I noticed that little phrase there. He says that my imprisonment has birthed a fearlessness in people because, he says, they have now become confident in the Lord. See, I wonder if prior to Paul's imprisonment, their confidence was in Paul. If they thought that the church of Jesus Christ rested upon the abilities of Paul, then maybe while Paul is out there doing his work, they can rest in that. There's no need for them to do anything because Paul is the one who builds the church. After all, he was the one who planted their church. You see, brothers and sisters, our confidence should never lie in any human being. No matter how skilled or powerful, our confidence should always rest in the Lord. I think that's important for us heading into an election season. I think especially for American Christians. I think if you kind of look around the world and you you know, look at, at different societies and different countries where Christians are persecuted for their faith, where there's absolutely no hope that this atheist despot who will never leave power, there's no hope that, that he's going to suddenly, without God's miraculous intervention, become a friend of Christians. Their hope has to be completely in Jesus Christ. But I think sometimes we can get duped into thinking that, that our hope for our salvation and for our security rests in that person who may or may not get into office. But you see, what happened here is that once Paul was imprisoned, they, didn't, they couldn't put their confidence in him anymore. What power did he have? It was completely stripped from him. Their confidence had to go into the Lord. They could have no more confidence in Paul. And so despite his imprisonment, Paul is able to rejoice. Why? Well, because through his imprisonment, people in the highest quarters of power who otherwise would never have heard the gospel from him have come to hear the gospel. And secondly, because of his imprisonment, Christians who otherwise in the past were too timid to share the gospel because they were leaving it all up to Paul have been emboldened to begin sharing it themselves. And so Paul is seeing an explosion of the church happening precisely because he is in prison. Paul is able to rejoice because God in his providence has brought about good for others through Paul's horrible circumstances. That challenged me this week. Christian, think about that. I'm not sure that's something that I would be able to do. 
Ask yourself that question. Would you be able to rejoice in the good that God does for others because precisely because he does them through the horrible circumstances that you're in? That's a challenge, I think, to our faith. As far as Paul is concerned, you see, his location and his circumstances didn't change his purpose or his mission. Paul never thought, well, maybe he did. Again, we don't have every thought that he had. We don't have every struggle that he had. But I think he saw himself on duty for Christ, no matter where he was. It didn't change. He didn't say, well, because I'm in prison, that's it. My mission's over. No, as far as Paul was concerned, until I draw my last breath on this earth, God has something for me to do. God has a purpose for me. Mark Dever, who I served with for five months uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church as one of his interns, he used to say uh, something akin to, Look, I mean, he, he, he didn't eat very well. He never exercised. You know, he drank Diet Cokes all the time, thinking they were healthy, uh, I guess. Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd have these conversations with him about, hey, that's not very healthy, you know, what you're doing. And his answer always was, look, life's short. I'm going to be in heaven soon. You know, this Diet Coke is just embalming fluid. Uh, it's just, just preparing me for death. It, but he would say, look, Look, I'm going to be in heaven soon, life short. My goal in life is to take whatever gas God has put in my tank and run it to empty until he takes me out of here. I don't want to have one ounce of gas left in my tank that I could have spent for Christ while I'm on this earth until he takes me home. You see, Christian... Whether we are healthy, relatively speaking, and, and you know, at the top of our game in the business world, and, or whatever it is we're doing, whether we're sort of succeeding as this world has it, or whether we are laying in a hospice bed, wasting away, until he calls us home, we can be a witness for him. I remember the hospice nurses telling me that they had rarely seen someone die with such peace as they saw my mom die. That made an impression on them. She still had a witness to give, even to the last moment. Now, it wasn't all perfect for Paul. Verses 15 to 17, he says, look, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul speaks of, of two kinds of preachers. He speaks of the envious rivals and the loving supporters. He says, first, some of them preach Christ from envy and rivalry due to their selfish ambition. Now, we might read this and say, these have got to be false teachers. Paul warns about them. 
Paul talks about false teachers. I know this is who, who he's got to be talking about because they're preaching with, from envy and rivalry with, with selfish ambition. Paul's answer is no. We know they're not false teachers because he says three things about them. Verse 14, he says, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Whenever we see Paul use that shortened phrase, the word, he always means the word of God or the word of truth or the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. He's saying some of these are proclaiming the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he says, look, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He's saying the truth of Christ is being proclaimed. Paul (coughs) often does warn about false teachers. That's true. But that's not what he's doing here. Incredibly, these preachers are preaching the true gospel. They're preaching the truth. Now, we might read that and say, okay, fine. Maybe they're preaching the truth, but they can't, there's no way these guys can can be true Christians. Maybe they're preaching the truth, but they've got to be Christians in name only who somehow get the gospel right. But Paul's answer to that is no. Paul's answer is these are true Christians. Notice that verse 15 begins with some the word some, that the antecedent of that has to be, because it's the only group that he's talking about, it has to be that that group that he's just talked about, the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now boldly speaking the word without fear. Paul is is calling this whole group, these two groups of preachers, brothers, brothers, He's not talking about false teachers. He's not talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. He's not talking about Christians in name only. He's talking about brothers in the Lord who are preaching the truth about Christ, and yet some of them doing so with horribly sinful motives. Now that that was the second big challenge for me this week. Because you read that and you say, well, well, can a Christian really behave in this sort of way? I think all we need to do is look at our own hearts. I mean, do we really need to ask that question? We, We see here in this text what the rest of Scripture repeatedly says. What the whole Old Testament bears witness to, and even the New Testament bears witness to, which is that Christians, God's people, called by Him, empowered by Him, given the Holy Spirit by Him, can sometimes act horrendously. Go read the story of David if you need to be reminded of that. I mean, on the one hand, it it does take us aback I think, when we first read that, that brothers are preaching out of rivalry and envy in order to afflict Paul. But then we just think of ourselves. I mean, what's going on here? Why are they doing this? Paul says they're doing it out of selfish ambition and rivalry. I think the bottom line here is that these guys are jealous of Paul. 
they're jealous of Paul. They considered themselves rivals of Paul. See, I think all things being equal, they knew they couldn't match him. That Paul is, was a brilliant man. Paul was given incredible brain power by God. Not only was he given natural brain power, but then he was given an unbelievable education. Uh, modern day scholars say Paul probably had the equivalent of two PhDs in theology. On top of that, he was given the amazing ability to argue his case like a lawyer in a courtroom. On top of all of that, he was made an apostle. I mean, it'd be one thing if he was just an average guy with all of this stuff, but then God chose him and said, I'm going to make you one of my authoritative representatives so that when you speak, it's as though I'm speaking. And on top of all of that, he was humble about it. I, I mean, the, he had it all. He, he was the complete package. I mean, Christian, have you ever met anyone in your life like this? And if you have... Have you ever felt just a little bit jealous of them? I had a professor in seminary, I've mentioned it before, Dr. Vern Poitras. And um, I mean, he was, he would be ashamed that I even said this, but you know, he, he's kind of like the closest thing to Paul I've ever met. He, you know, he had like six different uh, degrees, advanced degrees, PhDs from here, there, and everywhere. Uh, just an amazing mind not only for the New Testament, but for math. He was a math PhD from Harvard. And on top of that, he was the most humble man I've ever met. How can a man who knows the Bible a hundred times more than I ever will be that humble? You know, these guys, I think, figure, look, Paul was stealing the spotlight from us. But now that he's in prison... With him out of the way, they can finally become the stars that they always knew they had it in them to be. <clears throat> and you ask, well, can something like this really happen among preachers? Brothers and sisters, it happens all the time. To my shame, sometimes I talk to fellow preachers who I love deeply, who are good friends of mine. And they will tell me how great their church is doing. How, how many people showed up on Sunday. The great feedback they're getting from their preaching. Maybe even they've been asked to write an article for Modern Reformation or something like that. And rather than my first thought be, that's awesome. God is growing his kingdom through you and I'm so happy to hear it. To my shame, oftentimes my first thought is, well, why can't that happen to me? See, I have, to, I have repented of that before. Just a bit of a funny story here. Uh, when Stan Gale first took over preaching for me, uh, I didn't come here the whole time he preached because I was on sabbatical and I, I needed a break and all of that. But my dad would give me the report when he would come home. <laughs> and like the first week he came home and, and I said, how did it go today? And, you know, I'm hoping that, it, that, that things went well. 
relatively well. So, you know, he said, it went well. It went good. Yeah, Stan did a good job. You know, like kind of that tone that's like holding back a little bit. Like it wasn't the best sermon he's ever, and I said, that's awesome. Man, I'm so glad to hear that. Man, I'm so glad God's taking care of this church. And then fast forward a couple of weeks, and my dad came home and I said, hey, how'd things go today? And he said, I tell you what, man, Stan is really fine in his stride. <laughs> I mean, it's, he's, he's really nailing it. I said, man, that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad. And then fast forward a few weeks and he came home and I said, how'd it go today? And he said, man, Stan is on fire. He's firing on all cylinders. He just keeps getting better and better. And like beads of sweat start coming down. Are they going to want me back? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? Why, why wouldn't I have just simply rejoiced? Great. I'm so happy. Have you ever found yourself, Christian, having a difficult time actually being happy for someone else's gifts? Especially if you find that God has greatly gifted them in the thing that you wanted to do. That's what these guys were doing, I think. But Paul had his loving supporters. He said, look, some preach out of envy and jealousy. Others preach Christ from goodwill out of love for me. See, some of these brothers, they loved Paul immensely. Some of these brothers, they, like the others, they saw the obvious gifting in Paul. They saw his massive intelligence. They saw his incredible schooling. They saw his ability to speak apologetically and to, to nail it every time. They saw his humility. They saw his godliness. They saw all of these gifts wrapped up in this one person. And they're glad that God made someone like Paul. That's their, that's their reaction. They're not his rival. They are his biggest supporter. They are just so glad that God decided to gift someone like that. Because the world needs a Paul. That's what they were thinking. These brothers know, beyond a shadow of doubt, what verse 16 says, that Paul has been put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, that put here doesn't mean so much put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The word, the Greek word there, put here, it means the reason for existing. These brothers know that Paul's reason for existing is the defense of the gospel. If there was one human being that God designed to defend the gospel, these men knew it was the Apostle Paul. It was his ultimate reason for existing. See, on the one hand, we're all put here for the defense of the gospel, 1 Peter 3. Uh, to all Christians, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. On one level, all Christians are called to be apologists or preachers, if you will. But you see, some, like Dr. Poitras, or even on a completely different level, the Apostle Paul, some 
are put here on this earth for that reason. I remember in seminary, I remember one of my professors saying, guys, if any of you are going to pursue a PhD to somehow get honor and renown, let me just say, give it up. Because he said, there are hundreds, if not thousands of PhD dissertations sitting in the basement of Westminster Seminary collecting dust that no one has read since they were first written. He said, if you think that you're going to be the next Augustine or Calvin or Luther or someone like that, just that's not the reason to pursue this. Because you're not one in a million chance that you're going to be. See, every football team has its superstar, right? But every football team has the guy that fills the Gatorade bucket. They're all part of the team. See, envy and rivalry uh, can so easily creep into the church because our effort to glorify Christ can so easily and subtly become an effort to glorify ourselves. Rivalry can exist in the business world because if Pepsi wins, then Coke loses. But envy and rivalry should find no place in the church because the only superstar in the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if someone has a more prominent role in the kingdom of God than you do, so what? It shouldn't matter. Because the only one who matters in the kingdom of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood that, that yes, he was an apostle, and occasionally he would pull out his apostle card. He would pull that out when a church was doubting what he had to say. But, but at bottom, Paul considered himself a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like every other Christian. And ultimately, Paul figured, if Jesus is magnified, if Jesus is glorified, then that's all that matters, which is what he concludes with in verse 18. He says, what of it? What of it? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, look, first of all, two things. One, the efficacy of the truth preached is not dependent on the moral perfection of the one who's preaching it. The efficacy of the truth preached is not dependent on the moral perfection of the one who is preaching it. Now, my family might disagree with this statement, but I'm not perfect by any means. And even Paul, at the end of his life, called himself the chief of... That was a joke, by the way. My family would never say that. Um, Paul called himself the chief of sinners at the end of his life. He saw himself as what he truly was, even if other people put him on a pedestal. And yet, God can use, does use, and always has used, save for one person, fallen, corrupt, sinful, imperfect vessels to proclaim his perfect, infallible, and inerrant word. And God says, don't worry that you're a sinner because for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Every Sunday before I step into this pulpit, I thank God that the Holy Spirit is here. 
Because if it weren't for him, then nothing that I say would have any impact at all. Secondly, he says the truth is more important than the character of the one proclaiming it. Character matters greatly. Too many pastors fall into grave sin and it wrecks their ministry and it wrecks the church. If you just read through Paul's letters, you will see him constantly admonishing the church to strive for holiness and righteousness. Character matters. Morals matter. Godliness matters. That being said, it's obvious here by what Paul is saying that he would rather have men preaching the truth out of selfish ambition and sincerity than having men preaching falsehood with sincerity and selflessly. He would rather have that if he had to choose. Paul, if you ever see him talking about the false preaching of the gospel, becomes furious. Go read the beginning of Galatians. But here in prison, he recognizes the wrongdoing of the guys who preach out of envy, but he nevertheless rejoices ultimately that the truth is still being proclaimed. He ends with, yes, and I will rejoice. What we see here in this, and I'll close with this, is the foolishness of the gospel. We see the foolishness of the gospel in how it is spread. It is spread simply by words by the sharing of the good news. We see in this letter the foolishness of God's work and that it was through Paul's imprisonment in Rome that not only did what Paul said happened, but we have this. If Paul wasn't in Rome, in prison in Rome, we would not be preaching from the book of Philippians today. How many millions of people have come to Christ because he was in that prison? And lastly, we see the foolishness of the gospel in the gospel itself. If God could take Paul in prison, what by any human logic would would be thought of as a failure, and turn it into the advancement of the gospel, then how much more so could God take a Roman cross, the ultimate picture of failure, a cross upon which anyone in their right mind would have said, there is no way a Messiah on that cross will do any good. And yet God took the cross and turned it into the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. It's exactly for that reason that Paul, the advancement of the gospel is all that matters because, friends, it is our only hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. We thank you so much for this gospel. Father, we pray that we would look into this and remember that our only hope rests here in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.